chapter 7, beginning in verse 31 today. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Have you ever known someone that was just good at everything? I mean, everything that they do, they find success. They're good at every sport that they play. They play music. They make straight A's in school. It seems there's nothing they don't know. There's nothing that they can't do. You ever known anybody like that? We had a guy like this in college. His name was Josh. And while he was not Jesus Christ, his name or his initials just so happened to be JC. And he was better than us at every single thing he did. And to top it all off, he was going to school to become a surgeon. I was a good deal more self-centered back then. And I remember thinking, surely there is something that I am better at than Josh. But no, there was not. He was even a better Christian than all of us. It made us sick. You, you loved him, everybody loved him, and we hated him. Right? Have you ever known anybody like that? Well, today, we take an extended look at the man of whom it was said, he has done all things well. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus once asked the apostles, who do people say that I am? Remember this? Who do people say that I am? And the apostles responded and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're a reincarnation of Elijah, or, or maybe Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? That right there is the most important question in the entire world. For every single person, who do you say that this man is? Who do you say Jesus is? Not just with your words, but in your heart. Who is he to you? Let's read Mark 7, 31 through 37, which is our text today. This is God's word. Mark writes, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. And his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There in verse 37 is what we just referenced. The fact that they say of Jesus, he has done all things well. Sayings like this in the Bible give us an opportunity to take a step back and to take a long look at Jesus. To take a long look at what he has done, at what the Bible says about Christ. That's what we're going to do today. This is an opportunity from the Lord for us to take a step back and to look at Jesus. What does the Bible say about 
Jesus. Specifically, it says in so many different ways that he has done all things well. He has done all things well. Consider first his living. Jesus is living. He has done all things well, especially his living. Consider, under his living, consider his sinless obedience. Jesus is a man who lived what we believe to be about 33 years, never having sinned even one time. He never sinned. Not when he was a kid, not when he was a young adult. On up until the very last moment of his life, he never sinned even once. In 1 John 3, 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That was written by John. We, we believe that was probably his best friend on the earth, the one who knew him most. And he knew that he never sinned. This wasn't just from the outside looking in. This was by those who knew him best. He never sinned. In John 8, 46, Jesus is debating with the Jews. And he says to the Jews, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which would have been an outrageous and audacious thing for anyone to say. And yet this is Jesus. He can say that with a clear conscience. He can say that without being completely arrogant. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Can anyone convict me of a sin that I have committed? Can anyone charge me with sin? And no one could. He was completely pure in both his actions and his heart. Never once did he do something that God had forbidden. But we also know from James that sin is not just staying away from the bad stuff. Sin is also when we, we know, James 4.17, therefore if anyone knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. There was never a time where Jesus knew the good that he should do and didn't do it. He was completely and perfectly obedient. He resisted all temptation and did all the good that he could have done before the Lord for others. And his sinless life was absolutely essential for our salvation. This is not just some esoteric doctrine that, that people talk about in, in seminary classes. His sinless life was absolutely essential for you and I to be saved. For he had no sins of his own to pay for. He had no sins of his own to pay for, therefore he could pay for mine, and he could pay for yours. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned, so he didn't deserve death. He had never earned death, and yet he died willingly so that he could do so in our place for our sins. He was a spotless lamb, the ultimate sacrifice without blemish, to use Old Testament language. He never sinned. In his living, he showed us the Father. Jesus showed us the Father. When we were praying earlier. You might have heard me mention about how God hides himself. We serve a God who hides himself. We serve a God that is invisible. This is a God that John writes in multiple places, no one has ever seen. No one's ever seen God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he's a God whom no one has ever seen or can see. You can't see him even if you try. But Christ has shown us who God is. He's shown us. When Jesus was talking to Philip, Jesus told, told Philip in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
They're so inherently connected. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Colossians 1 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. He actually forbids us to make images of him in the second of the Ten Commandments, but he's made an image of himself and given it to us. It's Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Remember those first words in Genesis from God? Let there be light. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we see the glory of God? How do you do that? What is that? It, it's, it's tough. It honestly is. It's hard to see God with the eyes of our hearts. But if we go to Jesus, if we look at Jesus, which is what we're doing today, well, in the face of Jesus, you see and behold the glory of God. He was perfect in his living, in his selfless love. Think about Jesus' selfless love. He consistently turned away from his own needs and his own wants for the good of others. In his excellent book, Loving the Way Jesus Loves, Philip Ryken writes this. The real issue for most of us is that we always want to place limits on our love. It's so true, isn't it? We always want to place limits on our love. He says, we are ready to give, but only when we have something left over. We are willing to care as long as it's not too inconvenient. We are able to love provided that people love us back. It's so true of us, but not Jesus, though. Not Jesus. He let the needs of others set the agenda for the way he spent his days. His, his calendar and his schedule was set by the needs of other people. He gave of himself even when he was tired or hungry or needed to be alone. We've even seen that throughout our study of the book of Mark. Jesus has times where he's exhausted, where he needs to get away, and the crowds find him anyway. And instead of saying, excuse me, I have to have time away from everybody, no, he, he sees them not as an interruption, but with compassion, as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus healed those who could not repay him. He showed compassion to those who were in need because of their own poor decision-making and their own destructive lifestyles. We tend to see people like that and to say, you are getting what you deserve and you will not get help from me. Jesus sees people like that and helps them anyway and has compassion on them anyway. He suffered the wrath of God, most importantly, for the sins, for sins that were not his own to pay for. He suffered the wrath of God for sins that were not his to pay for. And while he was doing it, he was praying for the forgiveness of those who were putting him to death. His selfless love is perfect and unmatched. And then think of his zeal for God. Jesus' zeal for God. His every waking moment was focused on how he could glorify and please and obey the Father. He told his disciples in John 4 that his very food was to do the will of the Father. That was how he got sustenance and strength, was doing the will of God. Jesus was a man of prayer and a man of the scriptures. A man of prayer and a man of the scriptures. Multiple times in the Gospels, we are told that he stayed awake an entire night 
going all night without sleep so that he could pray. In Mark 1, 35, it tells us that very early in the morning, Jesus would get up, leave the house, and go off to a solitary place where he could be alone with the Father and pray. And it wasn't just prayer. He was a man of the scriptures. Now, Jesus would not have had his own Bible. Did you know that? He would have been poor. He grew up in a lower-class family, and in that day, no one in that class at all could afford to have their own copy of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would have had to go to synagogue to read these. He would have had to make appointments to read the scriptures. And yet we know from his life that he did so and did so often because he is consistently quoting the Bible from memory in situations that just pop up. He's, he's consistently quoting scripture from memory and applying it to the conversations and situations where he's, say, with the disciples or talking to the Pharisees or talking to the crowds. And it's because he knows it in his heart. He's set it to memory. And hear me on this. This is not just because Jesus is Jesus. This is not just because he has this supernatural knowledge that he's always drawing from. No, he was a man, a human being like us with our limitations and weaknesses, which means he would have put in the time to memorize and study. We are not given a window into his study habits, but it's clear that he did. And he spent a bunch of time in the scriptures, even though he would not have had his own personal copy of the scriptures. And all this because he was a man who desired God above all things. He desired God above all things. In the Old Testament, we read about David, that he was a man after God's own heart, right? On Sunday nights, if you, you attend on Sunday nights, we're going through the life of David in our sermon series there. He was a man after God's own heart. How much more so was that true of Jesus? Nothing was more important to him than living for God and knowing God. So much so that Jesus couldn't even hold down a regular job. He spent so much time seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness that he needed God to take care of all the necessities of life. He needed to trust God, and he did. He trusted the Father to take care of all of that for him because he, he didn't have time to work a normal job to bring in a living. His, his zeal for God was all-consuming. So no one has ever lived like this man. In every other religion, in every other religion that you can think of, the founder of that religion has skeletons in their closet that his or her followers are trying to ignore and trying to downplay and trying to pretend never happened. They've got things that people are ashamed about. Every founder of every other religion, go do the research. It's true, but not Jesus. We follow a man who lived a perfect life and never sinned. Consider, in his doing all things well, consider his teaching. Not just his living, but his teaching. He was teaching perfect truth. Even non-believers today are still fascinated by this man's revolutionary teachings. Ideas like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your enemies, the fact that no one can serve two masters. When he taught, do to others as you would have them do to you. His teachings were so powerful and so true that their goodness and wisdom cannot be denied even by secular society. His teaching was revolutionary. If you really think about it, it revolutionized life as we know it. He taught us to love our enemies and to sincerely pray for those who persecute us. 
was unheard of. When Peter asked, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven? He thought he was being generous. Should I forgive him seven whole times? He keeps doing this. And Jesus says, not seven. Seventy times seven. In other words, you never stop forgiving someone who wrongs you. Jesus taught us that it wasn't enough to follow God's commands on the outside. That you can be guilty of murder or lust or any other sin in your heart without ever doing it with your hands. Who had ever heard of such a thing? He taught the fulfillment of the old covenant, which changed everything for followers of God. No longer does God require sacrifices. No longer will foods make us unclean. And in Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, in his teaching, flipped greatness upside down and taught that the greatest in the kingdom is not a king or an influential person or leader, but the greatest is the one who is the servant of all, the one who puts others ahead of themselves, the one who does what no one else is willing to do and seeks no glory for himself. While evolutionary theory, the theory of evolution, teaches survival of the fittest, Jesus taught and exemplified the sacrifice of the fittest for the survival of the weakest. And he taught that those who were closest to God were not the ones who followed the most rules, but those who humble themselves and acknowledge their sinfulness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There have been a number of books recently by authors such as Glenn Scrivener and Tom Holland showing how the values of our modern society are actually built on the teachings of Jesus. As ungodly as it seems like our modern society is, their values are actually built on the teachings of Jesus. Our systems and values of individual rights, equity, ethics, care for the poor and the marginalized, freedom, and even science are all based on the teachings of Jesus. And yet the world has no idea. They have no idea it is, but it is. It's all based on the teachings of Jesus. It is what Glenn Scrivener calls the air we breathe. You just breathe it, you don't even think about it. It's the air you breathe. It's, it's built on the teaching of Jesus. John tells us Jesus came full of what? Two things, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Not just full of grace, not just full of truth. Full of grace and truth. And so, on the one hand, Jesus preached a message of repentance for sin, but also of salvation for anyone who would come. He extended God's love to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes while condemning religious leaders for their hypocrisy and spiritual pride. He taught that all who are weary can come to him for rest, and yet to follow him, you must renounce all that you have and all that you hold dear. His teaching was perfect. He did all things well. Consider his dying. Consider how well he died. No one has ever died so well. No one has ever died with so much dignity with so much courage 
as Jesus did. As he breathed his last, he cried out, It is what? It is finished. Showing us that he had done all that it took to accomplish salvation. In his suffering, he never cried out in self-defense. He never attacked those who were unjustly putting him to death. He was obedient, as Isaiah says, like a lamb going to the slaughter. We will never be able to fully appreciate the courage it took for him to do what he did. Number one, the courage to go through the death of crucifixion. A death so painful and so gruesome and so torturous, it would cause all of us to beg for it to be over. But not only that, to go through what he went through in taking the wrath of God for the sins of the world. To experience what it felt like to have his father forsake him for the first time in all eternity. Understand, Jesus is an eternal being. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He's always been there. Not just when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He's always been there. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And he's always had perfect fellowship and love with the Father. And in that moment, for the first time in all of eternity, he felt what it meant for the Father to forsake him. What would it be like to have God pour out the cup of his wrath and anger against sin, full strength upon you. Can we possibly begin to imagine the torment of his soul in those hours? None of us will ever know. Praise the Lord. He never gave in. He never gave in. He died so well. He never gave in. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out his sword and he's going he's gonna to defend Jesus. He's going to fight. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And then Jesus says in Matthew 26, 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you know, Peter, that I can do that whenever I want? I am submitting to this. They don't take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And, and so think about that ability, Jesus' ability at any point in time to call on God and God would send 12 legions of angels. He had the ability to do that. And at the cross, while he was being crucified, the bystanders there railed at him and mocked him, saying things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Or come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Come down right now and we'll believe in you. You trust in God so much, let's see if God comes to save you. And Jesus could have called upon the Father, and 12 legions of angels would have come rushing in. And in that moment, if he did, he would have shut up every single person at the foot of the cross, and they would have believed, and we would still be dead in our sins. Because he would not have endured it to the end. He would not have finished it. He stayed on the cross. That's why you're saved. That's why you have the possibility of being saved this morning. That's why salvation is offered full and free, because it is finished. It wouldn't have been if he stopped, if he gave in, 
if he silenced the taunts of those around him and proved them wrong. Salvation depended on him staying up on the cross. Consider finally his healing. He has done all things well. Consider his healing. He healed every disease. Every disease. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He set the demon possessed free. He even raised the dead. He raised the dead. He healed every disease. Look at the last sentence of our text today in verse 37. They say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He makes the the deaf hear. Jesus makes the deaf hear. We've seen earlier in Mark, Mark 4.23, where Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. As he's teaching, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what's the difference between someone who has ears to hear and someone who does not? It's not talking about someone who can actually hear versus someone who is deaf. That's not what Jesus was talking about there. He's teaching lots and lots of people. And and almost all of them were hearing what he said audibly. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear. All of you have ears. Do you have ears to hear? What he meant was a spiritual hearing. A heart to receive his words. Not everyone had that. What's the difference between someone who has ears to hear and someone who does not? It's very simple. The difference is Jesus. There are those who sit in church pews week after week and hear the word proclaimed, and yet all of a sudden, one day, it clicks. All of a sudden, one day, it hits their heart. One day, they receive it and they respond and they hear it. But why not the first time? Why not the second time? Why not the third time? What, what happened? What was it about me that I sat in church my whole life and when I was 13 years old, it was then that the Lord started pricking my conscience and, and my heart started to feel a response to the word. I had heard it so many times before. What was it? It was Jesus giving ears to hear. Jesus giving ears to hear. In John 5, 25, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Isn't it so interesting how he says an hour is coming and it's now here? Both, right? What's that mean? An hour is coming and it's now here. Well, there's coming a day when Jesus will return and scripture says the the physically dead will actually hear his voice and they'll come out of their graves. Kind of like Lazarus. You remember Lazarus? He says, Lazarus, come out. It's often been said, why does he say Lazarus come out? Why didn't you just say come out? Because if he didn't say Lazarus, all the other corpses would have come out of their graves as well, right? There's coming a day where that's going to happen, where Jesus is going to return, and they will hear his voice. And his voice is so powerful, dead and rotting corpses for thousands of years will hear it. And they'll come out of their graves at his command. But it doesn't just say the hour is coming, it says the hour is now here because it's happening all over the place, all the time. People who are dead in their sins. We, we, we heard it in that scripture that Adam just read from Ephesians too. While we were still dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. You hear the voice of the one who calls and you recognize it. It's the one our hearts were made for and you come out of your deadness. You come out of it and you, you come up 
to newness of life because you heard him. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the mute speak. He makes the mute speak. This is very personal for me. Because when I was growing up, I was the guy who said all the wrong things. And I was the guy who who was made fun of for saying all the wrong things all the time. Sticking my foot in my mouth over and over and over again. And God saw fit to turn me into one of his mouthpieces and to make me proclaim his word. He he makes the mute speak. Those, forget about that specific example, it's not going to happen to all of us. Those who were ashamed of him and of God, he strengthens them to speak to others about the good news of the gospel and to tell others about what Jesus has done for them. Look at verse 36 in our text. Verse 36, we've got another one of those confusing, like Jesus trying to be secretive things. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Remember why we said Jesus does that? It's it's actually more common in the book of Mark. Mark records it more than the other gospel writers. Why is Jesus telling them not to spread the word? Well, it's because his hour has not yet come. He has to do certain things. The, The Father has given him things to do before the end, and he has to accomplish all that the Father has given him to do. He doesn't want to accelerate his death too fast because he knows once word starts spreading, that's, that's when the ball starts rolling. You, you can't put it back for, for his death ultimately to come about. And so he tells people in verse 36, tell no one. He, he, he healed this man. Don't tell anybody. And it says, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And we've said this before, but what an indictment it is on the church today. That back then, Jesus himself, in the flesh, told them, don't say anything about this. And it it didn't stop them. They just kept telling people about him. And today, Jesus says, go and proclaim the good news, and we, we stay silent. What an indictment that is on us. They couldn't stop. Even Jesus himself couldn't stop them. From proclaiming it and yet Jesus tells us to go out into all the world and share the good news and we stay silent we all need this healing today do we not we all need this healing we all need him to open our ears so we can hear and receive his word Lord give us ears to hear if only he would give ears to hear what kind of response would there be to the word we need him to open our ears so that we can hear others as Christ heard them. Not just the words that they say, but the needs that they are communicating. We need him to release our tongues so that we can proclaim his truth and the news of his salvation and so that we can exhort one another. And we can exhort one another with words of encouragement and Holy Spirit power when we speak to each other. And so that when we speak in these ways, it actually reaches the hearts of those who hear. We need Jesus to make sure that that happens. We need Jesus' power to, to give us power in our words so that when we speak in these ways, it actually reaches the hearts of those who hear and doesn't just sound like the mumbling of a, a man with a speech impediment. Where it doesn't just go in someone's ear and out the other. We need Jesus to make that happen. And we need his ultimate healing. We need his healing from our sin. He has done all things well, but we have not. I have not. He has done all things well, but we have defiled ourselves with the pleasures of sin 
We have all chosen our own way over trusting his. We have all rebelled against him. We have all done so many sins that we have the scars and the shame to prove it. But praise God that while we have made a mess of things, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. And so he can reach down into the pit that we've gotten ourselves in and bring us out. No one else can do that because everybody is down in the pit with us. We're all in the same boat. Only he can reach into the pit from above because he has done all things well. He is unstained. He has no penalty. He has the power and the strength and the purity and the righteousness to do it. Only he can save us. And so I return, as we close, I return to that question that we asked at the beginning. Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus asks of every single one of us. Who do you say that he is? Who will you follow? Who will you live for? Who will you put your hope and your trust in? A political candidate? Hardly. Especially now. Your spouse? Your children? Even they will disappoint you. Even they will let you down. There is only one who has done all things well. There is only one who will never disappoint you. There is only one who is worth giving your life and your heart to. He has done all things well. Where else could we go? Let's pray for a few moments now in response to what we have just heard about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to give just a few moments of silent prayer, asking everyone to respond to God, to go to him silently, individually, and pour out to him whatever is on your heart. As he has spoken to you, now we speak to him. Let's do that for a few moments, and then after we pray individually, we'll come back together. We'll have a time of public response and invitation, or anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. Let's pray.